And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am really pleased to be able to reconnect on today's program with two highly esteemed musicians who uh, are going to be collaborating in very exciting fashion uh, for a concert coming up this Saturday night by the Kenosha Symphony Orchestra. On the podium will be maestro uh, Robert Hasty, and uh, at the piano, playing none other than Tchaikovsky's brilliant Piano Concerto Number no. 1, will be concert pianist uh, uh, Dr. Wael Farouk. And uh, we have both of them in this Zoom call conversation to talk about Saturday night's concert, which is also going to include one of the symphonies of Johannes Brahms. And what a marvelous way to finish out this current season of the Kenosha Symphony. So, uh, Maestro Robert Hasty and Dr. Wael Farouk, we welcome both of you back to the morning show. Thank you. Brian. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm so glad we can have this conversation. Uh, uh, Maestro Hasty, uh, remind our listeners about this special season of the Kenosha Symphony and the really exciting way in which it all comes to a conclusion. Well, uh, a year ago, actually it was less than a year ago, when we were trying to figure out how we were going to come back from the pandemic. Uh, during the pandemic, as you may remember, we focused on string orchestra repertoire. Uh, and we had more people streaming uh, our concerts uh, on their uh, devices uh, and a few people in attendance uh, during that year. Uh, during the summer, we were able to do an outdoors pops concert uh, that uh, was very popular and even made the news because uh, we had some rain on there and I was able to invite a Kenosha audience to come and hold an umbrella over their favorite musician in the orchestra. Of course, nobody held it over me because I'm not their favorite, but <laughs> so we had this wonderful, wonderful community experience. And then very late, we finally got the word from, uh, from the school district uh, from where we rehearsed that we can finally go back into the concert hall. This was probably as late as August. Usually we have everything set up in June uh, or even May. And so, uh, so when, we, when I was setting up this season, we knew that we would still need to do things gradually. We started with, with some Mozart and some uh, Haydn uh, at the beginning of the concert. And then we've been able to grow the concerts as we went. So uh, at that time, I called my friend Weil Farouk and uh, we had had uh, some conversations during the pandemic uh, about some of the projects that he was doing. And then he gave me this wonderful phone call, this beautiful gift, uh, not to me, but to Kenosha. And uh, Weil said to me, I'm gonna make myself available to area orchestras who are trying to rebuild after the pandemic. And I'm going to do it and, uh, by donating any fee so that I can help the or uh, the community organizations get back on their feet. So this kind of gives you an idea of the person, uh, the human being, uh, not just the great uh, artist that we know in Wael Farouk, but uh, the kind of uh, uh, giving and caring person, not just about the music, but about the community. 
And so we decided that it would be on in May and we had already selected the date and it was Weil who noticed, oh, the date of our concert is Brahms's birthday. So that's why in a lot of the publications, it says, happy birthday, Brahms. And uh, of course, uh, I, I don't have the encyclopedia kind of mind that Weil does. So he knew it right away. And then, uh, and so also when I work with soloists, uh, oftentimes I have a piece in mind, but with Weil, it, it was more important that we, he and I just collaborate. And he could have told me almost any piece. And, uh, but when he brought uh, up the Tchaikovsky, I said, that's the one. Audiences are gonna really want to hear that. Our horn players are gonna be really happy as well. I'm just curious, Wael uh, uh, Farouk, uh, were you at all tempted to make the first half of this concert Brahms as well and play uh, one of his two piano concertos or did it feel right to you uh, for there to be something to set in contrast uh, to the Brahms that will be part of the second half? Well, I, I didn't have really any thoughts about the second half. I knew that this will be Bob's uh, territory. First of all, thank you very much for your kind words, Bob. I appreciate it. All, all back to you. And um, I know you would have done the same as well. Thank you. Um, but like what Bob said, this is our second collaboration together. We did the Rachmaninoff second, I believe, in 2009. And that was a glorious experience and we clicked on very well. Bob is also not only a fantastic and great musician and person, he's also a brother in Christ and fellow believer. So we have more, more ties there together. So, I mean, the idea of just collaborating with him again and with the Kenosha is, is always um, a joyful news and always a, a very warm and welcoming atmosphere, as you will know, Greg, as well. So uh, the Tchaikovsky first piano concerto, one of the great concertos, of course, one of the most popular, maybe the most popular of them all. Uh, was that an easy choice? And did you find yourself gravitating to it for any particular reason? Well, you know, I think sometimes our subconscious makes the best decisions for us. Um, and often um, at the end, when all the pieces do come together, you realize that, oh, this is really, you know, meant to be in a way. Um, and I do not have an encyclopedic knowledge at all about anything. The reason why I probably know uh, two or three composers' actual birth date, and Brahms happened to be one of them, because four years ago, uh, in 2018, when I was doing the Brahms project at Carthage, the uh, 13 recital series for all of his chamber and solo piano music, we picked his birthday to be the final concert to close the series. And we had Elia Kaller, uh, the great violinist, come and play with us um, the piano quintet, and they played with him the third violin sonata, etc. So this is solely why I remember May 7th exactly as Brahms' birthday. But also worked out really well because, you know, there, there are these rumors, I think, these great masters, disciples kind of started the Wagner, Brahms, the Joachim Brahms, you know, school, and Tchaikovsky wasn't really 
a big fan of Brahms and maybe the other way around as well. But I think deep down, they they really respected each other very much. They learned from each other and they took a few things from each other. But, you know, some of their disciples kind of kept adding gas to the fire to, you know, for publicity or for whatever it is. So it, it worked out brilliantly at the end, having Brahms and Tchaikovsky, you know, a, a grumpy old couple together and two magnificent pieces. Uh, the Piano Concerto, as you said, it's it's one of the most beautiful. Even though it's played so much, it's still yet to be discovered and yet to be played afresh all the time. And the Second Symphony of Brahms is just a magnificent um, orchestral work as well. Mm, very good. I think uh, I, I can piggyback on, on what Weil is talking about when we uh, were talking about the Tchaikovsky, and that's the one. He mentioned that there's things that you know, when we when we discuss things, we don't know what it's going to be like in the future. You know, when we we didn't realize it was going to be Brahms's birthday. Um, when we uh, programmed the Tchaikovsky, which I which we did first before I uh, chose the Brahms, but the one thing that neither nobody knew is what historical situation would be happening in the spring, the winter and spring of 2022. And the fact that we are, uh, you know, performing a, a piece by a Russian composer. But what I think is really um, amazing uh, to note is that um, Ukrainian folk song is prevalent through this piece. And so it's going to be really important for the audience and for your listeners to know that that in in that first movement, one of his three themes is a uh, is an actual Ukrainian folk song that he once heard uh, sung uh, by somebody on the street, and so he put that in his first movement. And then fast forward to the third movement, it it's uh, another melody that's also based on a Ukrainian folk song, and. They're saying, historians say that it, it's probably because he visited uh, uh, Kiev or Kiev <laughs> while composing the concerto. While he was doing it, that's where he was. And he may have heard these folk songs during one of his, uh, he was visiting his sister's family in modern day Ukraine. And so the fact that Weil suggested that, and I said, yeah, that's the one. We also had no idea the 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 world climate that we would be performing this piece in that's remarkable for those of you just joining us my guests today on the morning show uh, are uh, dr robert hasty who is the uh, uh, musical director uh, of the uh, kenosha symphony orchestra and dr wael farouk who is going to be the guest soloist for saturday night's concert uh, the concert will begin with the first piano concerto of Peter Tchaikovsky, uh, and uh, the concert will conclude with the second symphony of Johannes Brahms, two of the towering masterworks uh, of the Romantic era. And uh, uh, it's a, a, a rare treat to be able to enjoy both of these superb pieces of music uh, played in person uh, in the beautiful confines of of. Uh, of the uh, of the auditorium there at Ruther High School, um, Maestro Hasty. Uh, just a quick word about uh, the Brahms and the fact that uh, 
there's at least three symphonies and maybe four by Brahms, right? Um, so of those, uh, did anything in particular lead you to choose the second symphony for this concert? Ironically, it's the fact that the instrumentation, this is what happens with the professional orchestra. You have to realize that I could have chosen maybe a different symphony, but it might have cost a little bit more money. But uh, if it had more instrumentation, the only difference between the instrumentation for, so this is, this is the way a music director thinks when there's a budget. So the, there's only one difference. There's only one musician difference uh, between the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto and Brahms II. And it also what makes the second symphony of Brahms unique from all uh, four of Brahms's symphonies. Uh, anyone care to guess? <laughs> okay, I'll tell you. It's the only, the only Brahms symphony that has tuba. So oh. basically, by, by basically, uh, by we only needed to add one more person uh, to do uh, the Brahms. I believe the other Brahms symphonies, we would have had to bring in a piccolo player. So uh, a piccolo or a tuba there, you know, that was, that was the choice. Um, so, and plus it's just a beautiful summertime symphony. We have to think of, of this as being um very similar to a pastoral like Beethoven six, you know, very similar. Uh, he was literally in the countryside in Austria during the summer of 1877, which is really important for the audience and your audience to note that, that these two works, the Tchaikovsky and the Brahms were written within about three years of each other. Mm. So two people writing relatively at the same time, and but in different locations. Uh, Brahms was writing his in Austria. Tchaikovsky wrote a lot of his while he was in Kiev. And so, um, and then the, the other thing, so, so very, very important for everybody to know that why uh, I picked that. Um, and it's just a very important, as we go into the summer, it has feelings of summertime and countryside. The, uh, the other thing that's important to note about Brahms that I think is that the the um, the towering effect of Beethoven and how most composers were so reluctant to write a symphony after Beethoven and Brahms I think was especially tortured. How do you follow Beethoven nine? How do you how 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 does one do that? And even Schumann was was reluctant. He, he waited until he was after a, a, he wrote most of his piano works and his songs before he wrote his first symphony. And, and then Brahms, uh, you have to, it took him almost uh, 17 years to write that first symphony that he wrote. And with the second symphony, less than a year. Wow. Just, it, it came right out. So, so he, he agonized over that first symphony, big success in November. And then the following summer, he wrote uh, this second symphony, which has a lot of the happier themes. We all know Brahms' lullaby. There's quotes of that in the first symphony. There's certainly the, some pastoral happier moments. There are some dark clouds that come in with the trombones and the timpani uh, occasionally that uh, be a little bit more melancholy, but, uh, but so many things are in three and waltzes were really popular at the time. And uh, that was one of the reasons why he wanted to incorporate some of the lightness in this particular symphony. I'm trying to remember, I'm pretty sure it's the second symphony where there's a fun story about how 
when uh, Brahms contacted, I suppose it was his publisher, or the publisher most likely to publish the second symphony that, as he's talking about, he says, I, I've just produced my second symphony. It's a work of relentless melancholy or something or other. I mean, which is absolutely not the case. And uh, just the f fact that he would kind of joke in that fashion about something as important as the second symphony probably says a lot about uh, Brahms's kind of down to earth uh, yes. spirit and personality. He made that statement to his publisher after he had written it. So that was like the next, it was in the fall. And he's, he basically said, yeah, it's so melancholy. It's the saddest thing I've ever written. And, uh, and that it's very mournful. And then of course, it's, it's one of the, the more um, light and happier pieces that he's ever written. Right. And I guess it's, it's important to say that there's quite a lot of, Brahms's music, certainly true of his songs and other things that there's often kind of a darker cast to it. Sometimes it's still happy, but very kind of warm and deep. And, and, uh, and then a lot of his music really does is, is kind of heavy laden with a beautiful melancholy. This is one of those instances where Brahms really sheds that and it's just a work of such good cheer and optimism. And I should think that probably figures also into, uh, you're thinking in terms of a, a lovely way to finish out uh, this orchestra's season and uh, looking ahead to the future. Absolutely. And we're waiting for spring. It's a little cold. We would love for the, you know, not only is the weather getting better, but it's, uh, it's safer to be outside. It's safer to be among people. And uh, this, this piece kind of uh, parallels our mood these days. Absolutely. I'm hoping. We're speaking with uh, Maestro Robert Hasty uh, uh, about the Kenosha Symphony's upcoming concert Saturday night, which will conclude with the second symphony of Johannes Brahms. And with us as well is Dr. Wael Farouk, uh, most recently on the music faculty at Carthage College, but about to begin teaching at Manhattan School of Music. Uh, but before he departs uh, for, for points, uh, points East, uh, he is joining the Kenosha Symphony for this concert Saturday night, playing the uh, Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto uh, Number no. 1. So, uh, Wael Farouk, uh, uh, I think it would be interesting for you to tell our listeners a little bit about uh, what I think are four piano concertos by Tchaikovsky, but certainly it is the first of the four that is sort of first in the hearts of at least the general public. Uh, certainly the, the piece that is played the most often and perhaps the most beloved. Uh, but tell us a little bit about Tchaikovsky maybe as a pianist and uh, uh, at least a general overview of these uh, wildly contrasting piano concertos that he composed. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so Tchaikovsky, uh, the two most played concertos are the first and the second and for probably the first i would say up till 1940s um very few people knew that he composed other piano concertos because the first one just hogged the scene and hogged the uh the tchaikovsky relationship with the piano uh his second piano concerto is is for me, is is equally beautiful and equally original. Sometimes even 
surpasses the first, but this is just my opinion. Um, the first piano concerto has so many interesting backgrounds. First of all, um, it is one of the pieces that Tchaikovsky himself conducted here in the States while opening Carnegie Hall. Oh. Uh, right. Um, and that was one of the staples of of his name, uh, accompanied by the Fifth Symphony of the same concert. And he wrote to his brother saying, the concert made me more famous in America than I am in Russia. So you can imagine how resounding the success was. Uh, Tchaikovsky as the pianist, that's a great question. Not many people talk about. Uh, he was not uh, an efficient pianist, uh, if we put it that way, although he wrote beautifully to the instrument. He wasn't naturally a pianist, uh, but he was surrounded, of course, by the uh, Rubinstein brothers, Anton and Nikolai, the two greatest pianists of the Russian school in the uh, 19th century, and single-handedly, they built uh, the Moscow Conservatory and the St. Petersburg Conservatory. Uh, in the beginning, Tchaikovsky's writing for uh, for that particular concerto, uh, he had so many challenges, and he dedicated at first to Nikolai Rubinstein, who was uh, the lesser-known brother of the Rubinsteins. And uh, Rubinstein, both Nikolai and Anton, but Nikolai especially because he was a closer friend to Tchaikovsky, actually criticized it severely. That is not written very well for the instrument, and it wasn't very comfortable, very unpianistic, too many octaves. Most of what he's saying actually is not false. It's kind of true, but it still sounds very beautiful, very symphonic. So. Surprisingly, even though Nikolai Rubinstein was a big champion of Tchaikovsky's music, Tchaikovsky redacted his dedication, and he ended up giving it to Hans von Bülow, dedicating it to Hans von Bülow, who was uh, Franz Liszt's son-in-law and one of his most important students and the great Beethoven player, the first pianist in history to give cycles of all of the Beethoven piano works. So, um, interestingly enough, a couple years ago, um, uh, a very well-known and very well-respected pianist, uh, we, asked, we actually studied with the same teacher, uh, his name is Kirill Gerstein, who did a rediscovery uh, of the first version of the Tchaikovsky Concerto. He went back, and that version that was not very well uh, written, not the revised version that that we have today, and he uh, made an audition of it and actually did one of the very first recordings of that piece. And it's very different on what, what you hear today from the uh, revised version, but it's still, in essence, it's Tchaikovsky. Um, the piece is just symphonic in scope, and it's very similar to the Brahms concertos in a way that both the piano and orchestra, in my in my opinion, they are one body of the musical text. You don't feel too much. Of course, there are conversations, there are give and take, there is this and that, but both really of an equal strength, an equal uh, contribution. Tchaikovsky was a great um, symphonist, as we all know, and um, he wrote that way for, for the piano as well. And they really integrate them beautifully. Um, 
So it's always a great pleasure to play. Um, what would be its most challenging passages? Uh, or, or are there things about it that, right. that are especially yeah. challenging, particularly from just kind of a technical point of view? Right. Well, it's there are certain takes on on the some people would say you know the famous octa the passages of octaves because so many pianists view this as a you know a race opportunity and they listen to the Horvitz's recording or the Marta Argerich recording and they try to play as fast or faster every day, but I think then you get railed and you miss utterly the point. It's, it's never about that. It's how symphonic, again, it is the orchestra perceives with all those strings unison and then the piano comes in, takes you up to a different scene. I, I'll go back to the same point again. There are, I think for piano, there are two categories of composers, those who know the instrument very well and write for it very well, like Chopin, Rachmaninoff, Bach, Beethoven, um, Mozart, and um, even Prokofiev. And some of those who somewhat write for it a little bit awkwardly. And I may dare to say Brahms is also one of the people who writes slightly awkwardly for the piano, very vertical writing. And Tchaikovsky is one of those, um, Ravel sometimes, uh, so on and so forth. So the the difficulties wouldn't really lie particularly in a one given passage, but how overall and perhaps the conception of knowing the instrument and making it sound well without too much effort. I mean, Rachmaninoff's music is very complicated. Liszt's music is very complicated, but it fits in the hand. It's pianistically conceived, and it's it's you have to work on certain things when you're practicing it, not to make it natural per se, because the music already sits well in the hand, uh, but you need to work on a certain type of difficulty. I think the most challenging thing um, universally about the Tchaikovsky concerto, the piano concerto, that it needs to sound more like a ballet. There is all of those beautiful ballet scene, if you will, and it needs to sound not like a struggle or not like a bombastic, you know, Soviet big bombs at the beginning. This is just the most beautiful and grand and maestros of openings of all concertos, really, like the Brahms first piano concerto. So I think the challenge is to approach the music and the instrument in a way that is always producing a warm and inviting, while big and full sound, but also uh, dwelling on those intimate, beautiful moments in the first movement and the second movement, and really make the instrument sing. And you can do it if you if you really immerse yourself in in, in the music. And I'm just curious now, as far as we know, I mean, you you mentioned that Tchaikovsky conducted it when it was done on that historic first concert to inaugurate Carnegie Hall. He didn't play it. Uh, was Tchaikovsky? Uh, a sufficiently proficient pianist to have ever been able to play this work, or was he, in effect, kind of a non-pianist writing for the piano? I think it's somewhat in the middle. He was um, he was an interesting person in many ways. He was also he had some sense of anxiety. I'm sure you know the biography had several break nervous breakdowns in his youth, but. 
those who attended the concert were saying he seemed always very nervous and there were reports of him holding his head with his hands while conducting because somehow he was paranoid that if he moved too violently or too passionately his head might pop off his body so there are you know that type of, of stories about him i don't think it would have added any more greatness uh, to the piece if he himself played it and even those who were great pianists um like prokofiev for example in his youth but because composition and conducting i cannot imagine how much time and discipline that takes live it leaves very very little time to perfect your craftsmanship as an instrumentalist let alone being a pianist so as you know there is so much goes into the nerves the memory all of this and that so i don't think i haven't heard of any any records of him playing the piece publicly that is so. Actually, the only I, I I know that there is a recording that exists of Tchaikovsky's speaking voice, uh, an Edison cylinder that captures his speaking voice. But I don't recall. Do you know if he actually was uh, persuaded to make any recordings of his own piano playing? Well, so that is a, a recently surfaced one, and the same uh, a, a voice recording of Anton Rubinstein. I know. Um, and they used in one of those Brahms concerts uh, uh, the same Addison cylinder recording that he sent to Brahms, and Brahms was saying a few words in the beginning and playing one of his Hungarian rhapsodies on the piano. I, I hope maybe there will be something like that surfacing, but it's it's still, even if it doesn't happen, I still love Tchaikovsky enough. Well, as does the whole world, and it certainly as the whole world loves this this piano concerto. Uh, uh, Maestro Hasty, what kind of opportunity does it offer the orchestra and you as the conductor? I mean, uh, there there are concertos in which you're kind of beating time and um pa pa while the soloist has all the fun. I suspect that the Tchaikovsky first concerto is not such a work and that there is fun to be had uh, by all. This is more of a collaborative experience, uh, as Wilde talked about, um, that we have, uh, it's not uh, where the orchestra is accompanying the soloist like you would hear in a Mozart concerto, uh, for instance. Um, and so, and I would say that it, it deviates from the con conventional form in the fact that uh, the formal structure of the piece is more of a fantasy. It's more like a uh, Fantasia than it is where you have, uh, you know, the first theme is stated and then it's developed. It's really a constant state of fantasy. So this is one where I really enjoy the fact that when I work with the soloist, sometimes I realize my role is, for instance, last night I just performed um, Clara Schumann's concerto, and that is more of a um, my role as a conductor was to accompany the soloist. But this one uh, with, with Weil, he and I will get to look at each other and respond to each other. And it's going to be more of a collaboration, which I find it so interesting, the history of this piece, the fact that the, the soloist who eventually premiered this work with Hans von Bülow, because we consider von Bülow to be the first professional conductor in history. 
you know, that you have so many other people who conducted, you know, Berlioz conducted, but it was because they were conducting their own works, right? But then what about somebody who's only a conductor? But I didn't realize until I studied the history of this piece that he was the pianist on this. So you have the composer who's conducting and the conductor who's playing the piano. <laughs> and, and, as, and as Wilde mentioned, you know, he married uh, Cosima Liszt and, and then another famous um, <laughs> composer took his wife, you know, poor, poor, uh, you know, the Wagner, uh, you know, took uh, Hans von Bülow's wife. Uh, later. So it was um, very interesting uh, historical perspective when you think about von Bülow, uh, you know, premiering this work. And of course, as, as Weil talked about, Nikolai Rubinstein, who Tchaikovsky really wanted to play this, suddenly changed his mind <laughs> about the concerto after Hans von Bülow uh, premiered it and said, oh, well, I guess I like, you know, I'm very pleased now. I, I guess I will perform it. Uh, <laughs> so he had a complete change of heart after somebody else, um, you know, got the luxury of doing the premiere. Mm, amazing. So uh, what is the uh, experience like to put together a romantic concerto like the Tchaikovsky versus a concerto by Mozart or something that presumably is a bit more straightforward and pulse and so on, putting this together, getting it to hang together and to achieve that kind of rhapsodic sense of anything can happen. Uh, how difficult is that to do within the space of, I should guess, rather limited rehearsal time together? I think, um, for instance, I have this uh, list of concertos that I consider very difficult. For instance, like Elgar Violin Concerto, the Walton Viola Concerto, where it's super collaborative and you have to be completely uh, in sync. But at least with a lot of those solo instruments there, I can see them in front of me. Okay, that, that the violist is in front of me. But with the piano, the pianist is behind me. So I'm often, well, you'll see me turning and looking over my shoulder, looking directly at Wow. I think it's um, one of the challenges. And I always have gotten dismayed, like for instance, at schools, they'll give the concerto to a student conductor. Whereas I really feel that the most expert conductor is the one who should be conducting a concerto because, the conductor typically is the one who leads the sound, meaning I give a gesture and then the ensemble responds. So in time, you see my gesture is given, but then the sound comes a little bit later. <laughs> the difference is, is that if I'm accompanying a soloist, think about it. I need to conduct in such a way so that the orchestra, which is behind my beat, that the orchestra has to be in sync with the soloist. So you're trying to find a gesture that is anticipating what the soloist is doing because you've had rehearsal and, and uh, we're thankful for Zoom because Weil and I are going to have our first rehearsal over Zoom on Tuesday where he will get to play for me. Although you're hearing this on Thursday. So I should have said two days ago, <laughs> Weil and I got a chance to rehearse <laughs> over Zoom. And uh, where I will just listen to a play. And so a conductor has to anticipate the needs of the soloist and also lead the orchestra. I give a gesture in advance of, 
of, of the sound that we want from the orchestra. So it is one of the most challenging parts of conducting uh, when you're conducting a concerto, especially one where it's not just like a Mozart concerto where the violins are going boom, chuck, 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 boom, and just setting a tempo. Um, but when it's something like this, more rhapsodic, uh, uh, I can, it's going to be a little bit more challenging, but I've done this for a while. Uh, while and I have worked together. I, we, I remember our Rachmaninoff too. And, um, and so uh, it, it's, it's easier for me now, uh, but that's simply because after years of doing this. Wael Farouk, do you as the pianist bear any of the responsibility as well for that sense of cohesion with the orchestra or, or by and large is the ideal situation where you play as the spirit leads, as you feel moved as a musician and, and it's the conductor's responsibility to keep all of this together. How do, how do you see your role in, in performing a piece like this in, in terms of that sense of, of achieving that sense of cohesion? That's another great question. Um, well, first, let me start by saying I also believe, believe around um, this time the the unique thing about the Tchaikovsky concerto, especially the first one. Um, you have for for probably the first time, even more so than the least concertos, or I dare say than the Brahms concertos, um, the need for a virtuoso conductor as well. So it's not only a virtuoso pianist, a virtuoso orchestra for the massive demands, the, the parts, um, the orchestral part demands, but also you need a conductor who is not just able to, to stay in time and cue, um, instrumentalist on their entries, but for the exact same reasons that Bob said, you have um, a telepathetic conductor who can read the future, but predict the presence and make th everything come together. And I think that in a way opens the road to the Rachmaninoff concertos because you also don't need a great pianist and a great orchestra and somewhat a good enough conductor. No all three has to be on the same level. So now back to your question. Um, there is a difference in the sense of, of freedom and chaos. I believe uh, we get our utmost and real sense of freedom when we very well aware of the boundaries and aware of what is coherent and what is, um, I don't want to say allowed or not allowed, but what will not um, distort the music. And we we cannot label that as this is just a freedom of taste or freedom of choice. Just suddenly I feel, I feel like doing something that I never tried before. I should just go on my, my own and take off. That doesn't mean that you don't rely on inspiration or, of course, that you're playing is downright, absolutely calculated, absolutely, um, you know, predictable. That's not what I'm trying to say, but I feel like we get our most sense of freedom from discipline and from knowing what are the possibilities, what are the scenarios that the music could allow for. I believe every musical 
piece, especially great pieces like that, they have their own frame. They can they can afford you doing that much to them within reason, right? If you go overboard, then it's not that Tchaikovsky concerto, right? It's it's yours. <laughs> when a, with a with a bad twist, not yours in a in a good way, like you hear Glenn Gould, for example, play Bach it's his really. But um so I I feel like um especially when we're playing chamber music or playing concertos, which is really an extension of playing chamber music, even no matter how massive the piece or the numbers of the musicians get. And knowing that there are certain things just because of the sound from the orchestra, my sound travels late to them. Their sound travels late to me. Some of them do not even hear me. And I do not even hear some of them where I am sitting. It's different case with the public, right? They hear everything. So I have to... And this is something hopefully a good teacher will tell you in your youth. And that's why it's important to play concertos in student days. And also experiences, you know, really hammers this point home. Now, there are certain things you cannot absolutely do or it will just be a disaster. It's different when you're playing alone. And I have the luxury that the instrument I play has massive repertoire to play alone. So there, I can go knock myself out uh, and do whatever I want in some of the other pieces. But again, within reason. Otherwise, I don't distort and, you know, disfigure and graffiti up uh, those pieces. But at the same time, um, you probably know the story. Uh, when Horvitz uh, premiered uh, in his debut here in the United States with Sir Thomas Beecham, they were both having their debuts. And they both choose, chose the Tchaikovsky concerto. And they didn't really have um, a good rehearsal at all. And Beecham was going his way and Horvitz went his way. And they were absolutely disastrous in ensemble, both great artists. And, you know, reviews went out the next day, who's right, who's wrong. And they were, they were basically fighting. It was an ego competition. So who will suffer, really, the music at the end? And I think it's a matter of not being humble but or not being you know too arrogant you we are all here to serve the music you, of course you have to say your own view your own story people are coming to hear the kenosha play tchaikovsky or to hear me play the tchaikovsky or to hear bob conduct the tchaikovsky but at the same time it's because of tchaikovsky we are all here so putting that first and um putting uh, faithfulness to the to the score and to what the text is about, especially when something that is well known. This is yet another. I don't want to say pressure. It's like you know going and acting uh, Romeo and Juliet one more time or King Lear one more time. There are hundreds and thousands of great versions, but hearing it again is yet another opportunity. To, to share more of what greatness may be undiscovered or unheard in such a masterpiece. Mm. So uh, I, I, I find myself thinking back uh, to that wonderful performance that you delivered with the Kenosha Symphony. Uh, uh, and how many years ago was that that you did Rachmaninoff to? I think it was about three years ago. Right? It was 2019, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was that, that recent. Um, uh, 
sublime performance of an exquisite work, and uh, it will be so exciting for us now to be able to hear uh, a, a different collaboration of yet another masterwork paired with yet another masterwork in the Second Symphony of, of Johannes Brahms. Uh, Maestro Hasty, uh, remind our listeners of exactly where the concert occurs and what people do if they want to uh, secure a ticket to enjoy this performance. Well, you can always get any information you want from kenoshasymphony.org. Kenoshasymphony.org, you will be able to find any information about it there. The other thing is, is that it is at 7.30 on Saturday evening. Um, the date, uh, I don't have my calendar in front of me. All I know is that it's, if today is Thursday, it's in two days from now. And you will go to Ruthier High School, uh, which has uh, a renamed auditorium. We used to call it Ruther High School Auditorium, but maybe Greg, you know what the new name of the auditorium is recently. Yes, it has uh, been renamed after an extraordinary gentleman named Ralph Houghton, who for many, many years was the head of music coordinator of actually all the fine arts for the Kenosha Unified School District. So it is now, I believe, the Ralph Houghton uh, Center for the Arts. And uh, I was there for the night when it was inaugurated uh, uh, as that uh, as that space, it's a it's a well deserved honor, and uh, and he had uh, uh, a, 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 a very strong hand in helping shape the musical legacy of the city of Kenosha into what it is, particularly in terms of young people. So that is where the concert is this Saturday night at seven thirty p.m. Two amazing uh, composers, two amazing works uh, that comprise the concert. And two amazing musicians on that stage, along with all of the members of the Kenosha Symphony, concert pianist Wael Farouk and conductor uh, Robert Hasty. Wael Farouk, you are soon to begin teaching at the Manhattan School of Music. I should think you are tremendously excited about this new chapter in your distinguished teaching career. What do you look forward to most with the Manhattan School of Music? Uh, that's a... Uh... A good question. What do I look forward the most? Uh, I look forward uh, being a part of this um, amazing institution, being a part of the musical life in New York City. I already um, got 61 requests from students to be in my studio. <laughs> uh, I believe so far I have uh, 22 confirmed students. Uh, we have till May 1st deadline, and um, I, I assume it, there will be a few more in there, so I know I'll be busy, but I will enjoy my, my time with these wonderful students, and um, MSM is one of my alma mater, and I went there 16 years ago for one of my graduate degrees, so it's always wonderful to go back. Um, one of my favorite moments at the Manhattan School of Music uh, Dining Hall. Uh, they have flags of all of the nationalities of the students who ever attended the school. And I, when I go, I see the Egyptian flag there. And that's always a heartwarming feeling. I am particularly glad that one of my um, students from Roosevelt University, who also happened to be an Egyptian. She is going to be coming to the Manhattan School of Music studying with me during my first year. I believe she is the first female Egyptian student ever to attend there. Wow. So um, I look forward to being near my in-laws. Uh, they live not so far away and 
it is a wonderful way to say um, at least see you soon if not goodbye to the Kenosha and, and uh, South South East Wisconsin area was was our concert uh, with Bob and the Kenosha Symphony. So. Well, it's a going to be a lovely opportunity to once again enjoy your your uh, stupendous artistry as so many of us have on so many occasions and uh, I want to thank both of you for being part of the morning show today what a great pleasure to speak with both of you Wael Farouk uh, maestro uh, Robert Hasty thank you for being part of the morning show best wishes with Saturday night's concert and all the music making that stretches ahead for both of you thank you again thank you, thank you. my pleasure